Hey, it's Nelly. And it's Juno. And you're listening to Two Addies and Coffee, please. Where we share unfiltered life experiences as young, badass Asian American women with ADHD. Welcome to another episode of Two Addies and a Coffee, Please. In this episode, we have an amazing guest, Diana Chow, founder and executive director of Letters to Strangers. Letters to Strangers is a global youth-run organization that seeks to destigmatize mental illness and increase access to affordable quality treatment. We first found Diana on a Facebook page, and when I was scrolling through all of these posts, I saw Diana's that stood out to me because when I read her bio, it was just so mind-blowing, and she has been through so many struggles as well as achieved so much in her young life and we wanted to give more context to all of her accomplishments and her struggles as like a young person who has done so much. So giving the spark notes version of Diana's accomplishments, according to Elite Magazine, Diana published a novel at age 13, received recognition from the U.S. Navy for her research on dengue fever at age 16, worked for NASA and became the only girl in California to receive the 2016 Presidential Scholar Award at age 17, became a special columnist for the American Astronomical Society at 18, was admitted to Princeton to study physics at 19, and even found time to create her own Vogue-featured photography studio along the way. And according to the Letters to Strangers website, among many other honors, the We Are Family Foundation named her a global teen leader for her effort in 2017. She is the youngest winner of the Unilever Young Entrepreneurs Award, the only American winner of the 2019 Global Changemakers, the 2019 National Alliance of Mental Illness Young Leader Award winner, and she gave a TEDx teen speech at the PlayStation Theater in Times Square to a standing ovation. She also used to volunteer for the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and the Lifeline Crisis Chat. So as you can tell, not much. (laughs) (laughs) She's an incredibly accomplished mental health activist, public speaker, scientist, artist, researcher, and so much more. Um, So it's really difficult to introduce you. Um, Would you mind giving a brief background on yourself uh, for our listeners? For sure. Thank you for having me. And that's a very kind introduction you had there. I hope I live up to any expectations as a listener might have now. Uh, But yeah, basically what you just said, uh, I'm a first generation Chinese American immigrant living outside of Los Angeles. I'm currently a senior at Princeton University studying geosciences, history and diplomacy. Uh, And the rest we can talk about as things go on. But uh, fun fact is I love penguins. Awesome. Um, What what is your personal experience with mental health growing up? I know you it's been like a very long journey of many things you went through and a lot of things you've accomplished. But how did it kind of start? Essentially, I was 13 when I was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. And After surviving a series of suicide attempts, I was 14 uh, when my little brother found me for the uh, during my final attempt. And at that moment, I, you know, the thing is, I was living under the poverty line with parents who didn't speak English. And I was working three jobs at the time. And um, I didn't really know how to navigate, therefore, the American healthcare system for 
many reasons, but it was just ex- it was just increasingly exacerbated over time all the problems problems I had with it. So I ended up turning to writing, and as I wrote these letters to strangers, I started to feel like I had a voice, and um, that you know I was being kind and empathetic to these people I'd never even met. But for some reason, I couldn't do that for myself. I was like, hmm, seems sus. So <laughs> that's that's kind of how I started to try to heal and the sort of inspiration behind Letters to Strangers, which became a high school club um, at my at my school and then eventually turning to the global organization it is today. I think it's super inspiring how much you were able to scale and impact this idea of sending letters to strangers. I know you guys are doing like multiple initiatives. Could you elaborate on that a little bit? For sure. So we have three main avenues. Uh, the first being, of course, the anonymous uh, handwritten letter writing exchanges, which happen with our chapters and partner sites, aka branches on school campuses, organizations, etc. But our second approach is our science-informed peer education. So for example, 2019 November, we launched the world's first youth for youth mental health guidebook. And it's like this 80,000 word huge book that covers the A to Z of mental health. Uh, we really wanted to dive into it with, with an emphasis on intersectional mental health. So not just those one pagers you see on websites about minority mental health, but really going deep. And so we had a team from um, over 50 countries entirely 14 to 21 year olds uh, who wrote this book and it's reviewed by medical and industry professionals and illustrated and all that stuff. So it's free to download on our website, letters to strangers.org. We wanted to keep it accessible. So that's a, another thing we do. And then the third avenue is our grassroots policy-based advocacy. So that looks like at schools or in state legislatures, et cetera, advocating for better mental health care and better mental health education, et cetera. Wow. So what is it about letter writing that you think makes it so powerful? Like whether you're receiving a letter or sending a letter versus talking about it with your friends, talking to a therapist, like this idea of writing a letter to a stranger. And how did you get that idea? Yeah. So, you know, I think what is so powerful about it is when you're writing a letter to a stranger, they know as much as you feel comfortable sharing with them. And so a lot of times when we're trying to talk about things we're going through with other people in our lives, they have already preconceived notions of who we are. And when you have the chance to finally, maybe for the very first time in your life, define your narrative the way that you feel it to be most authentic, that gives people a lot of agency. Uh, And, you know, you can write with a purple colored pencil or you can stick stickers over the place. You can draw. And at the end of the day, you decide who you are. That's the most important thing. And you will know that someone on the other side is listening to you. So that feeling of somewhere someone might hear your words and care about you the same way that you will do for another stranger's letter. I think that's a promise of a human connection that a lot of us crave. And for me, I ended up turning to this idea because, you know, like I was trying to do these journaling and other practices that I thought might help with my healing journey since I wasn't really able to see a therapist consistently due to problems with payment. And it just wasn't working very well for me because of the spiraling issue. So I started writing letters. I started out writing letters to like book characters. I think at the time that was when Hunger Games was exploding. So I was like, dear PETA, of course, I didn't say like, please marry me. But, you know, I was thinking (laughs) it. Uh, but yeah, as, as I started going on, I was like, oh, well, maybe I can write to a stranger. And I also started seeing like 
trends on YouTube where people were like reading letters. And I was like, oh, what if you roll into a stranger? So it's just a lot of different influences coincided. I love how you can be authentic on letters and then also say as much or as little as you want and be the person who defines yourself. Um, So growing up as a first gen like Chinese American and having parents who don't know English and also with the issues of like class and poverty, how can you... I guess, like, describe to your parents how that mental health, like, gap is like. Because I think my parents and, like, a lot of Asian American parents don't really understand mental health. They think it's just, like, this abstract thing that, like, oh, it's super westernized or it doesn't really affect us. And I feel like that's a lot of the mentality that people have. So how did you get through to them? Did you speak to them about, like, what's going on with how you're feeling? You know, it's tough. I think a lot of us have trouble talking about it with people in our family in part because those family members might be part of the problem. And that was definitely a huge case for me where my family was sort of the major stressor in my life. It's not so much that I couldn't talk to them about mental health and more so that my conversations with them often led to increasingly more difficult beliefs about my worth where I could talk with them about it and at the end I would come out of it feeling all the more confident that I didn't deserve the air that I breathed. So I think at the end of the day, you know, today it's a little bit different. After all these years, I reach a point where we can have a pretty good conversation about it. And they are very understanding now, I would like to think. But the approach I like to take is when I tell people now is to talk about it from the perspective of emotions, of tangible things, of uh, physical symptoms, if you need to bring that in. Uh, of statistics, if you think that will help convince them. And also at the end of the day to remember that this conversation is not a zero-sum game in that you're not necessarily in it to win them over. The end goal should be for you to accept yourself. And you being your own biggest self-advocate is what will help you on that healing journey more so than whatever words of validation or whatever else that you, of course, want to hear from them but might not ultimately get at this moment in time. Yeah, that's amazing. When I was listening to your TED Talk, I, it was very powerful the way you can communicate, like whether it's statistics <laughs> or analogies or whatever to really show like what that experience is like and have people recognize the size of this. Could you elaborate a little bit on like over the years what you found to be the most powerful and expressive in trying to explain these to people who might be like invalidating or still affected by all the stigma? Yeah, you know, I think a big part of it really comes down to me feeling like I am confident in who I am now and my story. So that helped a lot in terms of expressing my worth to people. Words really, you know, became my 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 clutch both through writing letters and then also through this feeling of if I can find the words to describe how I feel in a way that I feel is right. Because sometimes we like to use things like, you know, oh, I feel sad or I feel happy. But those are not necessarily words that fully encompass the extent or the nuance of what we're feeling. And what I like to, and what many others also call this, is an emotional glossary, where you try to expand on the ways you understand yourself. And the better you can communicate that within your own mind and to other people, the more control you have over these nuances. And I think that helps a lot. And do you have any tips on how to grow that emotional 
um, glossary? Yeah, so a lot of that comes down to self-reflection. Uh, you know, like instead of saying I feel sad, I like to ask myself, well, why am I feeling sad? Like, is it because I'm feeling betrayed? Maybe I'm feeling guilty. Maybe I feel frustrated. You know, a lot of times these are layered situations. One thing that <laughs> it sounds a little bit maybe stupid, but I like to try to rationalize my response by thinking, well, if I'm Sherlock Holmes, how would I anal uh, analyze this situation? And a lot of the times I'm not going to agree with Sherlock, but at the very least, it helps to have a little bit of an uh, uh, oppositional sort of perspective in my head um, to sort of just bounce these reflections off of. I think that helps to bring ourselves outside of whatever spiral we might be currently in and better understand from another perspective what we might be going through. And I'm curious to learn more about not only just like your mental health struggles, but also your physical health struggles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so, Around the same time as I was having my bipolar uh, issues, I was diagnosed with anterior uveitis, which is basically this inflammation of the eyes that can lead to blindness and even permanent blindness. And so eventually, so basically what happened was um, I started to get these really, really bad migraines. And as the days wore on, the migraines started turning into these white spots around my vision and then rainbow halos all over the lights. And eventually I just couldn't see anything anymore. By that point, I was rushed to the hospital and they found out that my eye pressure was at the lowest uh, times, like double that of what's normal. And then at the highest of times, almost five times what is normal. I, I don't know how to describe this other than it literally feels like elephants stomping nails into your head. It hurts Ooh. so bad. Uh, it got to the point where... Every time I would have an episode, I would eventually, I would essentially go blind and um, I wouldn't know if that episode is going to be the one that sticks permanently or if whatever concoctions of uh, eye drops and, med and other medications they put me on this time is going to work and then I'll, you know, be better. But then another episode will strike in a few weeks. So I basically spent uh, half of my high school career in and out of the hospital. I think the worst time was uh, February of my sophomore year. I woke up at like 3 a.m. and I was throwing up blood. And so my mom rushed me to the ER and it got to the point where um, I had a 110 degree Fahrenheit fever. That's like 43 degrees Celsius. And I lost my uh, my eyesight, my hearing. I couldn't eat or drink or anything. I basically I went into a comatose state and they had me on life support for a while. But I always like to joke. And this is so stupid when I think back on it. But when I woke up, I my mom was there and I asked her what day and what time it was and she told me and I was like oh no I missed AP chem <laughs> that, that about uh, tells you how I was feeling at that moment oh my god I can't even imagine just like being in that state of physical pain and just like the mental emotional like psychological trauma that you must be going through and I think like your take on it is like really humorous and funny because you're like oh AP chem but like how did you kind of cope with all of those scary feelings of like uncertainty and like oh will I be permanently blind am I gonna live or like things like that a bunch of uncertainty that you had in your life and those are struggles that I feel like are so large and unprecedented but then you have not only that your mental health physical health and also doing like just amazing in like school and your career how did you like manage all of that Thank you for, for uh, being very kind about uh, the way you described it. But the thing is, during those moments, I think I was in a sort of 
denial state as to what was going on. And I mean, as you can probably tell, I like to try to joke about these things as a coping mechanism. And uh, like a funny thing is, so around that time, one of the biggest jobs I was doing to help my family out was I was giving out samples at Costco, <laughs> like those samples ladies. But like I was, I started that when I was in middle school and I've been like 5'2 in height since then, 5'2 and three quarters. Okay, the three quarters is very <laughs> important. Um, <laughs> but I, I just, I, I just remember like sometimes I, think about it. I remember I would like stand there, like poking my head out from behind the samples desk. And I'm like trying to yell at people in my broken immigrant English. And you like, it's like a job where you stand there for like 10 hours a day, just nonstop. And so I was just like, this is so funny that I'm doing this. And so like just kind of thinking about it in that way helps. But I think the biggest fear that was really haunting me during those days was just constant uncertainty, right? Where I didn't know when an episode of my eye disease would strike again. I didn't know if my bipolar was going to flare up into a manic episode or if it was going to drag me down a depressive episode. It just felt like I was working against time. And that helps with sort of building adrenaline to sort of getting things done, which helped with my schoolwork. But at the same time, it just leads to this very chaotic and intense feeling that I couldn't even really put my finger on, but just constantly haunted me um, everywhere I went. I don't think this really got better until I went to college when I moved away. Uh, so after I graduated from high school, I took a gap year and I did a bunch of crazy weird things. Um, and then uh, I went to college and I, during this time I was at a mental health conference and I was giving a speech there. And this optometrist later on came up to me. She's like this Asian American optometrist. And she was like, you know, have you heard about these new studies that have been coming out relating uveitis, my eye disease, with uh, psychological illnesses. And I was like, what? And she was like, yeah, you should check this out. So she sent me some articles. And then I found out about something called psychosomatic symptoms, aka physical manifestations of psychological distress. And we tend to think of these as like PTSD, where like, let's say, you know, okay, I'm making a lot of Sherlock references, but like John from Sherlock, <laughs> uh, like he has like his like limp, but then it turns out his leg is actually fine. It's like a PTSD thing. Or like when you have an anxiety attack, maybe you have like increased heart rate or whatever else. But for me, uh, and for some people, uh, especially people of minority backgrounds where the stigma is particularly strong, uh, you can have these as physical symptoms. As my psychological condition grew better over my college years and I found the right medication and therapy regimen, so did my eye disease. And like today, I haven't had an eye episode in over two years, which is crazy because back then I had like an episode every few weeks. So having known that connection since then, especially because during high school, I went to hundreds of specialists and did so many tests and nobody could figure out what the heck was causing my eye problems. Knowing this connection now, I think has been one of the biggest reassurances of my life. Oh, wow. That, that's crazy how you haven't had an episode in two years. That's yeah. amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Wow. Yeah, I was I actually I was hiking this morning and it's on a trail that I uh, used to like to hike a lot. But sometimes when I had to hike it, I would have to hold um, the hand of whoever I was hiking with because my eyesight was so bad. And I was like, I can see. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> I was very excited. <laughs> That's incredibly inspiring that you were able to overcome like so much and have like that healing over the two years. Um, what do you think has been most impactful? in that process of you getting better? Yeah, I mean, I definitely do think I've gotten 
better. Um, but I think a big part of it was removing myself from those stressors and trauma triggers in my life. I know this is a difficult thing for a lot of people to extract themselves from. Um, but like I grew up with a lot of scars and child protective services, got involved in all sorts of stuff. And so it was very difficult uh, to extract myself from that environment for a long time. But one of the reasons I took my gap year was just because I needed to leave. And <laughs> like some of the weird, funny things that happened was I to save money while I was like just jumping around different places in the world. Uh, like I've slept on mountains in the middle of the Czech Republic. I've lived wow. with a prostitute for a while when I was in Paris. Wow. My friend liked to joke that like, that's probably the cheapest I could have slept with a prostitute in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, so it's, it's kind of like, I, I just did whatever I had to do to get myself out of the situation I was in. And I think it helped a lot. And of course, having had that time and distance now when I do have to be home which I had to do for quarantine I think it hasn't been as bad as it was before because I've gotten to a better place and that means I'm able to fight back a little bit better have you had a chance to reconcile with your family in terms of like trying to understand each other and better the relationship or do you think it's like something that happened in the past and you're just trying to like move on from that you know, I definitely am a proponent of like, if you need to, to cut that toxicity out of my life. Also to anybody listening, if you hear plates clinking in the background, that's my family uh, doing lunch things. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it's that life, right? So I think that me running letters to strangers to what it is today, the largest global youth for youth mental health nonprofit, that has had a huge impact on me being able to reconcile my relationship with my family. I often wonder if Letters to Strangers didn't reach the success that it has today, if they would be as open to talking about uh, my mental health experiences. Mm -hmm. But if that sort of success, quote unquote, is the price that I had to pay to get to this point of feeling safer uh, when I'm with them, then I'm glad that at the very least I'm here now. We'd love to connect and hear from you. DM us on Instagram at two addies with feedback or what you'd like us to talk about next. Hearing your stories and sweet comments really makes our day and motivates us to keep creating content. So thank you for all the support. With all of your struggles, with your eyesight and all the mental struggles you're going through, um, you were super accomplished. First of all, as a scientist recognized by the U.S. Navy, by NASA, but also accomplished artist as well. Could you talk a little bit of the role of science and art in your personal journey with mental health and the impact you want in the broader community? For me, I started really falling in love with uh, photography, especially conceptual photography, right around the time I got my eye disease. And so I got really mad at the universe. I was like, is this kind of some, you know, some kind of joke? <laughs> like, you're going to make me blind, right? As I started to realize this is something I really love. Uh, but in a way, it was actually something that gave me a perspective I don't think many artists have, you know, because you can imagine if you can't see anything for days or weeks on end, and then all of a sudden, when you can start seeing textures and shapes and colors and people and, and nature and all of this vibrance, it's so just gut-piercingly beautiful. 
And I wanted to capture that sort of magical moment between when I can't see anything and the moment when I can. And photography became my way of trying to hold on to those little pockets of life where I felt so grateful and just truly joyful. And that was a feeling that I didn't have very much during that period of my life. So that's a big part of why I went into conceptual photography, uh, conceptual being that, you know, I do a lot of digital manipulation. So these are things where I put people in lily pads and all sorts of stuff. And I try to have this series where I do um, sort of retellings of traditional East Asian folklores, uh, which is a series that I called Oriental Folklores. And that was a big part of me trying to reconcile my cultural identity and heritage with the sort of artistic expression as well. You've experienced so much adversity. How do you not lose hope? And you're still so optimistic. You're very humorous. And it's <laughs> like, how do you hold on to that hope and joy that you have for life? I think uh, art played a big role in that. You know, when I was writing these letters to strangers, part of what made it so meaningful for me was when I was writing in journals, because I was in such a dark place, a lot of times I would spiral into deeper and deeper parts of my thoughts that just sort of ricochet against each other, like an echo chamber with your own worst enemy, aka your own mind in my case. But when I was writing to this stranger, to this other person, I had to think about, well, what would I want to tell them? And I don't want to, you know, leave them on like a really bad note. And so I want to try to come to some sort of resolution. And so that sort of forced me to try to shift my mindset a little bit wherever I could. And when I was doing, you know, photography, even just escaping into that little fantastical world I created on Photoshop or whatever for a while, that helped a lot. So I think for me now, it's just about discovering those magical stories in my daily life. Um, maybe it's a little ridiculous to bird watch since I can't really people watch now because of COVID. <laughs> but, uh, you know, trying to find those little stories of something else that's outside of what you're going through. I think it helped me restore a little bit of at least curiosity. And I think curiosity oftentimes leads to hope. Mm. And for science, honestly, I went into it kind of because I didn't want to do the Costco sample stuff anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I, I thought that if I was researching in a lab, that probably would pay better because I have to think more. And so I, I taught myself as much as I could. And I ended up getting a job at the Keck Graduate Institute where I was doing research on the dengue virus. And then I was a researcher at NASA at the Jet Propulsion Lab when I was 17. Uh, and then I worked for the UN when I was 20. I was on the intergovernmental panel on climate change, uh, sort of research writing assistant sort of situation. But yeah, and then I'm a geo major now, but nobody really knows what that means. And I also really don't know that much about rocks. So I don't really think it does anything, but you know, it's what it is. <laughs> I'm curious to understand how did you get a job at Costco at such a young age? Wasn't there like an age limit or anything before they offered you a job? Yeah. So, okay. So a lot of places, the minimum is like 13 or like 14. Mm -hmm. uh, and also like, so Costco hires their own contractors, but then they also allow companies to supply their own demo people if that company has them. Um, so that's kind of how I went about it. But that wasn't my main job. I did a lot of random side stuff. And, you know, when you are doing your own independent things like web design or coding, which is some of the things I did, 
you don't have to reveal your age. So that helped. (laughs) (laughs) I love how entrepreneurial you were in like such a young age in terms of like trying to survive and get by and also find any opportunities that you can to like learn those skills and then get another job. So I really admire that. Thank you. Well, you know, I was the only person in my family who spoke both English and Mandarin fluently where like, you know, my parents didn't speak English, so they had a lot of problems. And then my brother, due to a lot of reasons, uh, doesn't speak Chinese. And so they can't communicate. And so then I just became the de facto uh, Mm. person to do all the things. (laughs) Um, Did you ever struggle with telling another person about your mental health journey? or any fear of how they will judge you or think less of you because of that? Yeah. So actually, when I was in high school, I started Letters to Strangers as a student club when I was a sophomore in October of my sophomore year. And throughout the entirety of high school, I didn't tell most people the mental health concentration of it, especially my own background. I just kind of framed it as an education sort of club. Mm -hmm. And after I graduated and I moved out, I felt so much more freedom. And that's when I started to tell people a little bit more about my story. And ironically, that was also when more people started to connect to the concept behind Letters to Strangers. And we started to grow into an international organization. So I often think, oh, maybe if I you know, trusted people with my story earlier, it would have grown faster before. But I'm also glad that it was when I was more capable of handling my conditions that it started to grow bigger because I don't think the younger me would have been able to handle the stressors that came with running this huge organization. How do you balance like going to school, this organization, doing your research and art with everything going on and then there's like coronavirus? How do you, how do you manage to be super productive? Uh, The short answer is I do not manage. (laughs) Uh, You know, at the end of the day, it's like you prioritize the things that you need to make time for. And I heard this phrase that someone said to me once, which is only busy people have time in that the busier you are, the more you have to learn when to say no. And that really helped me, that mindset where, you know, I think a lot of us get stuck because we are trying to aim for the 100% mark in what we're doing. And I think the most amount of time we spend on something is trying to get from the 90% to the 95, to the 96, et cetera. And so I've gotten to the point where I'm like, okay, you know, I'm going to try to raise my efficiency and my knowledge level to the point where I'm satisfied with my 90%. And then that way, whenever I do that 90%, I can move on to something else. And I don't spend all of that time afterwards on like perfecting it unless it's something I truly care about and want to devote that time to. Um, so that's the approach I take a lot. And then also like I take a lot of breaks because I work very productively, but for a very short amount of time. So I realize that's what works best for me. And so I think once you find your pattern that, totally fine if you need to sleep for a long period of time every few hours like me one thing i also really love you're a big promoter of people of color and representation like art and mental health and all these different fields what is kind of your perspective on that i know you have many strong passions around it (laughs) a big reason for my passioning it is because um since the time i got into this whole mental health advocacy scene i've really been one of the only 
I don't want to call myself prominent. I'm so sorry. But I guess I have the kind of useless word to explain it. But uh, prominent uh, youth Asian American mental health advocate. And that's often the identity I represent in whatever conference that I am speaking at or whatever else. But as much as this is nice in terms of getting me more opportunities, it shouldn't be the case. And so that's why I really want to emphasize having these aspects of diversity being explored more, not just from like an awareness perspective where we're like, oh, we need to talk about it. Like, yeah, we need to talk about it, but then let's talk about it rather than talk about how we need to talk about it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I think one thing I really loved about the guide, uh, the book you're writing in Letters to Strangers was that it really focused on intersectionality. What do you think were the biggest points or like goals you had in achieving that? Yeah, so that was a huge effort because every single section for these different diversity-minded chapters in the guidebook, we wanted to make sure it was either written by someone who belongs to that community and is like a prominent leader uh, or educator in that community, or it's reviewed by someone of that same title and status. And so, for example, this meant that in our Buddhism section, we had a youth Buddhist leader from the kingdom of Bhutan act as a a reviewer. And for our West African sort of traditional religions uh, section, we had one of the traditional practitioners in Nigeria review it and all sorts of stuff. And then I'm talking about religion a lot because I think that has a very uh, obvious sense of diversity associated with it. But also like, for example, the Asian American Pacific Islander part, like we really wanted to make sure we address Pacific Islanders as well. Cause a lot of times people say AAPI and then it's mostly just East Asians. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to make sure that diversity was clear too. So that took a lot of research and, and, outreach but i'm proud of how it came out i love how you guys spend a lot of resources to make sure those voices are included since a lot of times in like mainstream media those voices aren't the ones that are represented and usually like a little whitewashed so to say in terms of how they're represented so i love how you take those voices and have people who really know it review that Thank you. I'm glad to hear you say that. You know, one thing that I realized from those sections is it's a lot easier to talk about mental health within your communities when you feel like you have these nuances in mind. And so, for example, in our Asian American section, we talk about things like the Korean condition, Hwapyong, or Chinese Shenzhen Shuaizhuo. And we talk about how you can kind of try to relate these to mental illnesses in the Western psychiatric world to make what you're going through a little bit more digestible for perhaps older or more traditional family members, etc. And that's sort of what's special, I think, about the way we approached it, is we really went into these cultural terminology and things like that, that a one-pager on a random website probably doesn't tell you. So how is your experience um, with your personal mental health right now? Yeah, so I think I'm on a pretty good medication regimen now, so it's helping me a lot. I will say that jumping back into the frying pan, uh, metaphorically speaking, during quarantine when I returned home was difficult, but... I am also equipped with many more strategies and practices that are helping me recover from anything that might start to trigger me or whatever else. So I'm proud of myself when I notice those changes. And I think giving myself a little bit more credit in that sense is also helping me chug forward. (laughs) 
with all of this productivity that you have and the amazing initiatives you were able to start, were there ever times when even now, like things get difficult and you're struggling through something and then suddenly these systems don't work for you? Do you ever have struggles being like overwhelmed, not being able to keep up? And how do you manage that? Oh, absolutely. I'm going to expose myself a bit here, but uh, I kind of had a breakdown right before this interview. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know if I'll be like in an OK mental state going to this. Uh, so people who are listening can't see this, but I'm literally holding my duck plushie right now. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so this is Ducky. I've had her for a very long time and I like to hold on to her whenever I'm feeling this way and it helps a lot. Um, like when I had a lot of bad test anxiety, I would bring her with me in my backpack. My backpack has like a little pocket poking out in the front so she can poke her little head out and I can just look at her from time to time and I'm like, okay, Ducky is here. We'll be okay. And so... <laughs> You know, sometimes it's just about looking for your ducky <laughs> to go to when you are in a time when the system isn't working and you need to rely on something else. Thank you for being super vulnerable and sharing with us because like I have to interview people for a project I'm working on and then this podcast and also at work. But I'm always like super anxious, but no one can tell. <laughs> Yeah, no problem. I just wish people can see the glory that is Ducky. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> She's a little old, but you know, it's okay. <laughs> we can post on Instagram a special promotional for Ducky. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> Ducky's going to be more famous than me. Do you still ever have spells that last for like a longer period of time in the recent times? Yeah, not as much as before, but definitely sometimes that still happens. You know, during those times, I think I try to be kinder to myself now. So there's this model uh, that I like to think, which is when I'm weak, I'm strong. When I'm strong, I'm stronger. When I'm stronger, I am strongest. And I sometimes will write that on a sticky note and put it on my mirror or on my bedside drawer. So when I wake up, I remind myself of that. And maybe I'll read a letter <laughs> that someone sent in or whatever else, but just allowing myself the time to heal or rather um, I like to say accepting the time to heal because I think a lot of us have that extra time now, but we don't really know how to use it. And we feel like we're doing something wrong if we take it. Like we feel like we are not being as productive as we should, but you should accept that time to heal because that will be better in the long run. And um, honestly, you deserve it. <laughs> I remember you mentioned before when you were younger, you didn't even know if you deserved the air to breathe. How did you go from that to like where you are now? in terms of self-esteem and self-worth? I think running letters to strangers helped a lot, not because of the size it's at, which like is great and all, and not because of any accolades, because at the end of the day, what matters the most is the people and the connections that I've made from it. And feeling like I have agency in doing something that mind slash hopefully is helping other people, that is a very powerful game changer in my head. Um, one guy I interviewed many, many years ago on the streets um, of downtown Berkeley, he told me that he just wanted to be well enough to help somebody else. And I think that really encapsulates it for me. When you have the ability to do something outside of yourself, whether or not that thing is necessarily successful, it demonstrates that you are a human being with capability. And that in and out of itself is a promise and a sign that you have so much worth that you might be giving yourself credit for right now. 
Wow, I love that. One of the times that I felt better was like a time I had to talk to my brother and I was struggling with depression. He was also struggling to depression and I had to like find the strength to say something to him to help him and that somehow helped me. <laughs> yeah, you know, actually that's a big thing I tell people is to, like a lot of times I have people asking me, you know, what to do when they think their friend needs help but their friend refuses to get help. And I'm like, look, let them help you. Go to them with a problem. You can start with something simple like, oh my God, I have like this crush. I don't know how to talk to them, <laughs> you know, kind of like <laughs> ease their way into it. But then you can like eventually get to the point where you're like maybe sort of asking them a question that echoes what you think they are going through. But you like are like, oh, it's me, you know, like I'm feeling just really freaking sad right now and I don't know what to do. Um, what do you think? Like, do you think maybe I should go see a therapist? Would you mind helping me out with looking for some in our area? I don't really mm -hmm. feel comfortable going about it alone. And through that process, it's also allowing them to have that freedom to internally arrive at the conclusion they need to to feel like they can seek help. Mm. That is very good advice. Thank you. <laughs> How would you go about helping someone else who is in like a difficult place? Because I feel like I'm not the best person to like have comforting words or like say things. So what's the best way to go about helping someone if you don't exactly know those right words to say to them? That's a really good question. And firstly, I want to say that I think you're already doing a really great job by, you know, echoing what they're saying. And when you say things like, oh, et cetera, like at the very least, you're demonstrating to them that you're actively listening. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes that's a much better thing to do than what we might think is well, how do I say this? I think a lot of times people get into these conversations thinking that it's their job to solve the other person's problem. Yeah. And actually, most of the time, you know, you're, you are not the knight in shining armor for that person's story. And that's a good thing. It means you don't have to go slay the dragon and like risk your freaking life. You know, yeah. our job is to be there to help them as they figure out the road they want to walk on. So first thing, you know, like you said, to affirm them with these verbal signs and physical signs. But Another thing I personally like to do is offer them concrete suggestions on how I think I might be able to participate in their healing journey, but then leaving that as a very much open-ended question. So instead of saying like, oh, let me know if you need something, uh, which kind of leaves the burden on them, I might be mm -hmm. like, oh, well, let me know if I can help you make a therapy appointment, or let me know if you want me to help you or go with you to CVS to pick up your prescription medication, um, mm -hmm. if you want me to you know, schedule a hike with you every other weekend, things like that. And if they say no, it's totally fine, but they know that you care. And more importantly, maybe you've now gotten some gears turning in their head about, oh, well, actually, maybe it wouldn't be so bad if this person helped me along with that, you know? I've never thought about that before. I was always like, oh, yeah, let me know what you need. So I like definitely love when you switch it and say something specific in which they can readily open up to you and say like, oh, I do need that or I need this. Yeah. I remember one of my worst times. Um, I locked myself in my room for like three months, basically. And one of my friends in college at the time, she asked me if I wanted to get food. And I was like, oh, no, I don't really want to eat together with anyone. So then I heard a knock on my door uh, like an hour later, and she just dropped off this takeout box of ramen for me. And she didn't mm. even say anything because she knew I didn't want to talk. She just left it there. And I was so grateful because I was hungry and I wanted to eat, but I didn't, <laughs> okay, but I didn't want to leave my room <laughs> and talk to people. Uh, so like the fact that she just did that, even though I didn't ask her to, meant so much. So I think that's, yeah, that's where this whole idea comes from. So thank you, Connie, if you're listening. <laughs> That's wow. super sweet. 
Mm. <laughs> yeah, she's great. Do you ever think that the level of involvement might be like too much? Like, what is like a good amount? Because I know some people struggle with that. Yeah, and you know that depends on the other person. But I think at the very least, when you ask them about these specific things, like they can reject, and you're like, okay, I understand. I think people are much more honest when they reject a specific action item than the concept of action in and out of itself. And another question that I have for you, out of curiosity, where do you see yourself、um, going after Princeton? <laughs> <laughs> oh man, good question. I also want to know.、Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, I think my plan is to run letters to strangers for a few more years, but I really do want to keep it a youth for youth、uh, situation. So after a while, I'm gonna transition it to some of the younger folks on our team, and then. What I'm gonna do then? I don't know. Maybe I'll actually use my geo degree, but you know,、uh, or maybe I'll work in climate stuff. Yeah, but that's probably what I'll try to do. Climate and health has a lot of intersections, so that's gonna be our next big problem. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Diana, for sharing your stories. It's super inspiring to learn about everything you've been through and what you're doing for mental health advocacy, as well as. Hopefully, all the things you achieve for climate change, research, <laughs> science. So I'm super excited. Thanks. I hope to not disappoint. <laughs> and thank you for listening to another episode of Two Addies and a Coffee, please.